there was there was a lot of craziness. There was a lot of, you know, you could literally make a phone call saying this guy's taking a 50 meter slot in London. Do you want our 80 meter slot? And and they would like demand it and, and, and kind of walk over their dead granny to get the 80 meter slot because the other guy had the 50 meter one. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of crazy things happened back then. There was a lot of money being thrown around. You had people reserving three properties off plan pre-construction and their plan was to kind of sell two and, and buy the third you know, with zero cash from the profits of the first two during the 15 month construction. There's all sorts of madness going on back then that I don't think we quite touched the same levels of during the last, you know, boom we've, we've just gone through now. I think it was a little bit more exuberant even back then. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug with the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Colin Murphy. Now, Colin is originally from Ireland. He's an expat like myself, and he started investing in real estate back in 2009. And since then, he has bought and sold more than $100 million worth of US real estate, over 350 fix and flips in Tampa Bay, Florida, between 2015 and 2020. He has experience in a variety of real estate-related activities, including buying and hold, fix and flipping, wholesaling, tax liens, tax deeds, foreclosure auctions, note investing, private money. The list goes on. I'm exhausted just going through it. But he also spent many years in Madrid, where he was an active flipper and a landlord in Florida whilst investing abroad. Um, And he's also, to top it all off, he's the host of his own podcast called Colin's Podcast About Real Estate, which you can find on iTunes, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I'm really pumped and excited to have another Kraken expat on the show. It's always great to talk to other expats. But enough of me. Let's get him out of here. G'day, Colin. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Thank you very much, Reeves. Great to be here. Mate, it's, uh, it's always great to talk to other expats. I had the pleasure of coming on your show, I think, early this week. And 
it's just nice to be on the same wavelength as uh, other foreigners who've, who've come here, made it happen, uh, and really created something from scratch. So, so well done, and I can't wait to get into your story. But before we do, can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? I will, and it's going to be super stereotypical because I'm an Irish man and I made my first money working in a pub. And it was when I was 13 or 14, and I used to go to a, a pub across the street. I lived in a village in, our, in Limerick called Castle Connell, and there was a bar called Bradshaw's, and it's still there. And I used to go there in the mornings, uh, weekends, and summer holidays, and literally sweep the floors, restock the shelves, mop the bathroom floor, and do whatever else was, was necessary to get the bar running, except the fun stuff, which would have been, you know, pulling the pints, but I had to get out of there before the bar opened. But that was... My first kind of summer money was cleaning uh, floors and restocking a bar. Awesome, awesome. Uh, obviously, being underage, you can't be there during open hours, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, yes, not, not drinking or not serving <laughs> drinks, certainly, yeah. <laughs> but, mate, walk me through the journey. Obviously, I mentioned in the beginning, you've been investing in the U.S. since 2009. How'd you get here? Like, what's what's the story? Where'd you go to college? How'd you how'd you choose the United States out of out of all the places to come to? Yeah, it's it's funny how it happens, isn't it? I'm, I mean, I'm I'm 40 years old now, and and been investing in the US for about 11 years. But it, it kind of my my relationship with the USA started when I was in university. I went to the University of Limerick, which was near where I lived, and it was a fantastic university, and it had a much bigger international student population than than other colleges in Ireland at the time, and they had a fantastic work experience program called co-op where people spent the majority of their third year in university working for a company and so most people would have got a job in in dublin or limerick or maybe gone across to to london or manchester but i always wanted to go to america and, and i managed i'm not sure how but i managed to get a job with new york life insurance company as an intern for my my work experience my third year work experience and this was back in the year 2000, where I spent nine months living in the North Bronx, a place called Woodlawn. And I used to get the number four train into Manhattan every day, uh, working in this enormous building, like 8,000 people working in one building and nine restaurants in the basement floor and its own subway exit uh, near Madison Avenue. And I was just in love with the size of, of everything and, and the enthusiasm of everybody and the kind of can-do attitude. I had another Irish person literally sitting right behind me and, and on my floor in New York Life Insurance. And it just kind of goes to what you said, that expats tend to help out other expats. And, and it's, you know, that's been my case when I was a kid in New York. And it's been my case when I was a little older as well. So I got a real taste of it. And I kind of did everything I could to, to try and maintain that enthusiasm. But it took me a few years to get back here. But the, the experience lasted. I also spent a summer in San Francisco, myself and five buddies from, from Limerick, I spent a summer there and I worked for uh, another internship called First Consulting Group. I think it was an IT healthcare and this was in the top of the dot-com boom area where, where everything was going crazy and I got to travel around San Francisco visiting hospitals, installing servers in their server rooms, these Cisco 6500s. And it was just a fantastic way of seeing the city. We we're hanging around with a lot of millionaire 25 year olds and 26 year olds who who introduced us to their world and it just gave me that other sense of you you can do anything you want in america if you're willing to work hard if you know how to make if you know how to network if you know how to choose the right kind of career path for yourself and it, it just gave me that a strong work ethic and a kind of a can-do attitude and, and a level of confidence 
in, in myself that a lot of other Irish people might not have had. And I, and I only got it myself just from having that exposure to the American market. That's so interesting that you had, uh, I guess, was it, a, was it ingrained in you to come to the United States? Like you, it was just a natural thing. Like I wanted to go and give it a crack over in the US. I think I had some, it was ingrained in me. I wasn't kind of pulled here by anybody with a cousin or a friend or anything like that. I had something in me that was just itching to, to do more and get bigger. Um, I mean, I was always, you know, always enjoyed widening my circle of friends. I always enjoyed networking. I always enjoyed reading business books that other people might not have been interested in. I was always good at kind of getting jobs in, in kind of interesting companies. Even when I was in university, I worked for another, you know, worked part-time at another company on the university campus, uh, you know, scientific company doing data entry, whereas a lot of people might've been working in a, in a bar or a restaurant. So I was always exposed to kind of white collar people uh, in, in university. And I hung around with, with people that had aspirations to go on to do bigger and better things. And it just kind of rubbed off on me and I don't know why, but I managed, you know, that first trip to San Francisco, I literally just convinced five friends to go to San Francisco with me. I got a, I got the job in a phone interview, you know, while still in Ireland. And I, I think, you know, two thirds of the reason I got the job was he, he liked my Irish accent. <laughs> you, just, you use whatever you can, right, mate? And, and you just kind of go with it and make the most of it. But I think it must have been something inside me. And I, I got, I got lucky in a few steps along the way. No, that's that's awesome, and, and yeah, you gotta you gotta lean into the Irish accent whenever you can, mate. I know I definitely have leaned into my Aussie accent over the years. Um, but tell me, how did you wind up in in real estate, and where did that bug started uh, biting at you from inside? Yeah, well, it, it was kind of accidental. Um, I did I finished my degree in Limerick, and then I did a master's degree in marketing in Dublin, and then I went to London, and my first job was working for the Irish Times newspaper, which is a pretty prestigious newspaper in Ireland. And they had a London office, and I was selling advertising in it. And so I was selling advertising in the main section, the sports section, the travel section, the property section, you name it. And I was there for about a year and a half, and I kind of smashed through all the targets that had been set for me. Uh, but my boss kind of screwed me out of a bonus on a technicality, and I, I really didn't like it. I really didn't. This is back in 2002. 2003. So I, I just kind of left. And because I enjoyed, for whatever reason, selling adverts in the property section the most, I kind of looked for jobs that were still something to do with property and advertising. And I ended up working for a company called Blendon Communications, who were a little bit of a pioneer in the United Kingdom in that they used to organize property shows all over the United Kingdom in Ireland, where you would go to a show in London or, or Manchester or Glasgow and there might be 40 or 50 companies promoting real estate. So it might be promoting your, uh, you know, villa in France and another one in Spain, something in Italy, uh, kind of a condo in, in, in Orlando, uh, you know, and then other markets came along, Turkey and Eastern Europe and South America. And I got to travel to all those places, convincing them to, to buy space at these exhibitions. I got to sell adverts in the magazine doing the same thing. I used to go on road trips with the journalists uh, to meet these agents and developers and I was on the road just going to like 20, 25 shows a year. You'd spend like a weekend in London, a weekend in Manchester, Liverpool, Dublin. And you just got to hang out with, with all of these real estate experts from all over the world. And it was a real work hard play culture. And I, and I just loved it. And this was really kind of a boom in, in British real estate, Irish real estate, 2003, four, five. And I ended up kind of finishing after about three and a half years of that to work for another young company that I'd seen kind of grow 
you know, with, with that company in terms of they started out as a little six meter booth and it came to start at the front of the show and, and they had a, basically they were a developer of emerging markets and, and they used to sell, they were the first people to sell real estate in places like Latvia and Lithuania and, and Belize and Argentina, first people to bring real estate to the British market. So I, uh, they came to me to open up an Irish office for them, which, which I did in, I think, 2006. And so I was, you know, I had to open an office, hire a sales manager, office manager, a couple of other people and, and promote their real estate to the Irish people. So I was selling properties in, in Panama and uh, Argentina and Belize and, you know, Bulgaria and Romania and traveling to these places all the time and, and you know, hiring rooms and hotels to do seminars and, and kind of trying to publish our own newsletters and magazines. And it was uh, it was a very exciting time for, for a few years and on, until it wasn't, until 2008 came along. Well, I think you have such an incredible story because that is definitely unique and selling real estate in such unique places like Bulgaria or, you know, I think you said Bolivia, you know, it's uh, the Eastern Bloc. Tell me a little bit about what they were selling. Was it these condos? Was it cash flowing assets? Was it, you know, because when I think of selling stuff, I think of when I moved to the United States in 2012 and a lot of Aussies were being sold these, these um, what do they call them, turnkey properties, right? Was it similar turnkey properties that you were selling back in the mid 2000s? like in these other parts of the world? It was, it was a bit of a mixture, to be honest with you. It was a very, very ambitious company. And, you know, a lot of it was lifestyle orientated more than investment orientated. For example, they had a, an eco resort in Belize, which is in, in the Caribbean, where they're literally building a, a village in, in the jungle. And they had another resort on the waterfront in, in Belize, where there was kind of luxury apartments with a clubhouse and a swimming pool and, and pool bars and people were kind of buying for the lifestyle but back then there was always an element of you know you're, you're buying it for the lifestyle but you can also make money and it was pre-construction so you're kind of putting down a five percent deposit and then you're kind of paying in stages as the property gets built and oftentimes there was developer you know would rent your unit back off you kind of these short-term hotel lets um you know some of it was just speculative you you kind of fund a, a development of a resort and you can exit a few years later uh, some of the stuff in, in eastern europe they were doing like a ski resort in bulgaria as a, a kind of an affordable option for the people that couldn't buy a, kind of a property in the ski resorts in italy and spain and france which were very very expensive so people started doing it in in eastern europe i mean at the time there was developers were doing all sorts of, of ambitious schemes and, and people that might have previously been nervous to buy outside their hometown were suddenly thinking well i may as well let's let's buy a condo in bulgaria why not i mean it, it just it was a really really unusual time but it was mostly lifestyle related and uh, you know there was an income generating part of it as well but it was yeah you're right it was a very wide selection of places in a very wide selection of countries you know it's it's fascinating and definitely things that you see and you also mentioned booths and trade shows and, and real estate trade shows. And you, I, you know, I feel like you go to a real estate trade show in the last 10 years has been like the boom of real estate trade shows, but you sound like you were in it in the early 2000s. Was it still as booming back then or, or are the different trade shows now with sort of the investment side really focused on rather than the lifestyle side? I think it was probably a little bit crazier than, than it was. I know there's been a boom from 2012 to you know this year, but that came on on, on the back of a very tough crash that a lot of people suffered from. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the boom that lasted from 2001 to 2007 was far more 
exaggerated than the one that was from 2012 to 2019. And just in terms of the amount of craziness that went on, I mean, you had prices, uh, even in Ireland, prices were, were tripling in seven or eight years. And, and you had the same in a lot of other cities. And that was one of the reasons why, and people, you know, I was dealing with British and Irish buyers back then more so than mostly dealing with American buyers now. But, you know, people were really losing their own themselves. The economies were growing very, very fast. People were able to borrow money at very low interest rates, thanks to being in the European Union. And there was, there was a lot of craziness. There was a lot of, you know, you could literally make a phone call saying, this guy's taking a 50 meter slot in London, do you want our 80 meter slot? And and they would like demand it and, and, and kind of walk over their dead granny to get the 80 meter slot because the other guy had the 50 meter one. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of crazy things happened back then. There was a lot of money being thrown around. You had people reserving three properties off plan pre-construction and their plan was to kind of sell two and, and buy the third, you know, with zero cash from the profits of the first two during the 15 month construction. There's all sorts of, madness going on back then that I don't think we quite touched the same levels of during the last, you know, boom we've, we've just gone through now. I think it was a little bit more exuberant even back then. Yeah. So now let's pivot into the, um, the US real estate and moving to Tampa. When did you come back to the US throughout that journey and, and pitching other foreign deals and to the Brits and, and to the Irish? When did you come back to the US and, and why did you started to invest in Tampa, Florida? Well, it was back, we started looking at it in 2008 when our, you know, the company I was running in Dublin was, like I say, promoting real estate in emerging markets and, and the, the global economy was basically collapsing and the kind of market for pre-construction investing just evaporated and obviously developer finance for it evaporated as well. So the whole business model was, was kind of going up in smoke and very quickly. So uh, unfortunately I had to let go of a few staff but I had a sales manager that I kind of hired who was, you know, about six or seven years older than me and had a lot of experience in real estate and, and took like a significant job cut just to work with the kind of office I was running because he liked the company. And he had, uh, his name is David Shaw, and he bought a property in Orlando in the early 2000s and he kind of exited out of it in 2006, just before the crash. And he was aware of the condo market and he was aware that things were getting wobbly in, in Florida real estate and, and thought, well, you know, if nobody wants to buy pre-construction real estate, what if we can sell them highly discounted properties that are already built in, in the, you know, the most, the biggest and, and most, you know, some ways most stable economy in the world. So I will tell me more. And so we let's, he kind of convinced me, let's, let's get a flight to Orlando. We'll meet up with a few agents and, and developers and we'll see what kind of inventory we could sell. So we, we went over there with nothing other than kind of a track record in selling investment property to British and Irish buyers. And we were talking to these developers who had gotten caught out with their condo conversions. And, and as you might remember, well, you know this being a multifamily, but in the early 2000s, people made absolute fortunes from buying in a, an apartment community, which is like a single entity. and and dividing it into individual condos, maybe fixing up the units as they went along and then selling them individually. So you might buy something for 10 million and end up selling it for 15 or 16 million after literally just subdividing the units. And a lot of people did that, those condo conversions, and made a lot of money in the early 2000s. But the people that did it in 2006 and seven uh, got really badly caught out because finance for condos just completely evaporated for, for years. And so these developers had to 
tried to find buyers and they ended up tenanting a lot of those condos just so they could earn income to pay off those big mortgages they were servicing. And then you had people like me coming over and we were pretty early to that game. And we said, well, look, you've got this 200 unit community. Uh, nobody's buying them at the $240,000 a unit you thought you were going to get. You're, you're kind of fire sailing now, but give me exclusivity on you know 30 or 40 units. I'll collect the fee as a kind of a middleman, an international marketing agent, and I'll, I'll sell them all to cash buyers for you. And I'll have this, you'll have cash for these 40 or 50 units in the next 40 days, 50 days. Just let me promote them. And we went back and created some, you know, glossy brochures and price lists and fancy photos and and just sold them. And and we got a reputation around Orlando for doing that. So we we promote a lot of condo communities in, in Orlando and, and also other parts, Jacksonville and, and some in Tampa as well. There's a beautiful community called Waterside of Coquina Key in, in, in St. Petersburg that we promoted that, that David and, and his wife, Catherine, later moved to. So we just got very good at promoting these condos that were priced at like seventy seventy five thousand dollars in two thousand and nine and ten and eleven, and would have been selling for two hundred two hundred and twenty thousand dollars just three four years earlier. And these were were built recently, converted recently, renovated, often you know rented out for nine fifty or a thousand dollars a month. And just the idea of buying a high quality condo for seventy thousand dollars as rented for a thousand dollars is is just crazy now. I mean, if you could. I mean, when you think of all the great deals we, we promoted and sold, you, you just wish you kept more of them. But it, it was uh, that's how we kept the lights on. That's how we pivoted and, and, and just created a, a new company owned by myself and, and, and David and, and his wife, Catherine. And we just kind of went from strength to strength. And, you know, we did awesome. working on, on real estate in Florida for 10 years. And, uh, you know, the kind of low hanging fruit just kind of went. So, you know. It wasn't a surprise. It took, we were early to that, promoting distressed condos. And we had that market to ourselves for a little bit, whereas maybe some other small guys. But it was around 2011 and 12, bigger fish started circling and, and they would, you know, control 100 units or 200 units. And then they would try and, you know, be a master agent and we would be a sub agent or, you know, prices just started going up. And, and whereas we used to sell kind of B quality places for $80,000, $85,000, now we're being offered maybe C quality areas for a hundred thousand dollars. And it just started getting a bit silly. We're like, no, I'm not promoting this stuff. I don't want to do it. And so we just had to take a pretty big decision to literally stop doing it. And we had to reinvent ourselves again. And, and this is a common theme in any entrepreneur that's been in business, you know, 15, 20 years, you kind of have to do a big reinvention every five or six years. And went from obviously selling the emerging market stuff to promoting uh, kind of condos as an international marketing agent. And then in 2000 and 13, 14, we had to decide to plow a lot of the money. We'd retain a lot of money we'd earned into seeing if we could be a, a house flipper and just kind of buy our own real estate, fix it up and, and see if our, our investor database would be interested in that. Interesting. Now, it, it sounds like, well, two things that I just took out of that was probably your integrity to not fall into the trap of the frothiness of when markets start to get a little frothy and you're not selling bad quality investments and potentially could end up in jail or have a really bad name for yourself if you went down that path, because that was probably what you're seeing. So how do you keep that integrity at the forefront when you're so young as a company, when you're trying to keep the lights on as you're, you're trying to do? Well, I mean, your, your reputation has to be sacrosanct. I mean, you really have to care for your reputation. You really have to care because we, we were dealing with, with real people. We were dealing with people that were spending their their savings, their life savings and their pension money on properties 
they knew nothing about. We, I mean, we originally had a lot of British and Irish investors, but later we had a lot of American investors all over the country. And and for them to spend $100,000 on a condo in Orlando was a big deal. We weren't dealing with a hedge fund. We weren't dealing with a family office. We weren't, you know, it wasn't anything like that. But even regardless, you, you just can't, you, you can't sell something to people that you think is a bad deal. I, I could never, I could never do that. I mean, I'm not, you, you just can't build a reputation like that. People aren't going to refer business to you. People aren't going to come back to you for more deals. And when stuff goes wrong, you, you, you help people get through it. You help them fix it. If somebody needs to sell quickly, you help them sell quickly. You do whatever you need to do to, to maintain a clean reputation. Because as, as you know yourself from having one, it takes a very long time to build and right. a very short time to destroy. So, you know, we were never kind of tempted to kind of take that shortcut or take that quick buck or sell a, a kind of a crappy house to, to some unsuspecting you know, lady in Manchester. I mean, it would just never even occur to us to do it. And, and you know, thankfully, I, I had business partners that thought along the exact same lines with me. There was never a tug of war over, you know, something to do or not. It was, we, we always did the right thing. We always looked for good deals to promote to people and good deals to buy and sell to people. I had to harp on it a little bit because so many people have been burnt with that international trade of this sort of on paper, it's too good to be true type of stuff, the returns. And, you know, I know people in Australia who got really, really burnt in it. And it's good to hear from yourself as a as an early operator that you just you drew the line in the sand and said, I'm not, I'm not gonna be hocking C class product for a hundred thousand dollars when only a couple of years earlier I was I was selling B class product for seventy five thousand dollars. So I think that's kudos to you, mate. And, and in being in the early in your career, it would have been um, it's good to build that foundation off because, as you said, like you can, it takes years to build a, a reputation, and you are dealing with people's monies, people's life savings, people's everything. And so you have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you're doing the right thing by them because you want to be here for the long term. You want a, you want a business that lasts for 20, 30, 40 years. So um, so so well done. Um, now let's pivot into what you're doing today, and, and has that lasted longer than five years? Because you mentioned before, every five years got to continuously be pivoting. But I think you've been flipping for uh, quite a long time now. Yeah, I mean, we started our. I think our first couple of flips were in 2014, and you know, not, I mean, I, I guess sometimes people make a killing on their first few flips, but I think you're probably better off struggling <laughs> with your first few. And we did. We, as in, we we worked very hard, and it took longer to sell it, and we ended up make, you know, we ended up making money, but far less than we thought. I think maybe, you know, four thousand dollars profit between three people after four months of work, you know, and, and we're like, Jesus, do we want to do this again? And we're like, yes, because this is what we did wrong, and this is what we're gonna not do the next time. And we made the mistake of of doing a couple of flips out of state, which is I don't advise any of your listeners to do. I mean, whereas you know, if you're based in Tampa, don't go buying a a big house in Charlotte and, and trying to renovate it is, is just hard work. But we, once we went, uh, and I know you said this to me as well, that we went, we only really achieved through success, like, like financial freedom success when we went very, very deep in a market. So, you know, whereas I had a history of kind of promoting real estate all over the place, all over the world, uh, I only really became properly successful after we focused on a small neighborhood in Tampa uh, called you know, West Pasco County and little town called Port Ritchie, New Port Ritchie, literally a, a string of suburban houses about eight miles from north to south and, and three miles from east to west. And we literally bought, you know, about 400 houses in there. And there were all these kind of cookie cutter, concrete block, single family homes built in the 70s and 80s. 
and they were just very easy to 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 renovate and very easy to kind of scale up because you know when you're when you're doing renovations if you've got like seven renovations going on and they're all a couple of blocks apart you can send your crews just in a circle you you go in here in the morning and you paint this and then you go over there and you paint that and a roofer will go here and then go there and AC guys so we were able to to scale it up and you know it was like 2014 we did about seven deals 2015 I think we did 20 and then it it just kind of kept adding about 80 percent every year so it went from 20 to 40 a year and then 60 a year and then 80 a year and then did about 110 last year and you know bear in mind I was living in Spain for a lot of this I only moved to Tampa about three years ago mid 2016 when the business was just growing too much and and David and Catherine and the other guys in the ground were kind of going this is just too just too busy Colin come over and kind of <laughs> help. help out a bit it's it's you know because it's it just got a bit silly so I moved my my wife and my kids from a cozy, uh, cozy lifestyle in Spain over to the, you know, kind of cut and thrust of, of Tampa. And, and, you know, we've, we've loved it and it, it helped grow the business significantly. And uh, it was all, all sold to Americans now, but like I haven't sold to an international buyer for a long time. I think I did sell something to a French guy in, in the Caribbean recently, but the vast majority of our buyers are out of state uh, Americans. And, and we, we've been selling them renovated rentals. So you know, people that want to build uh, rental portfolio so listed very very little on the mls all all sold to investors so we're kind of continuing that kind of core skill we developed way back in the early 2000s where we're building relationships with investors taking care of investors getting repeat business and referrals from investors and we just kind of continued that through through the years and uh obviously we're in a different space in the market now and we're not you know the, the kind of the volume for activity isn't the same now as it was last year with with this whole lockdown and the coronavirus and everything else. But we we had a fantastic run the last five or six years. That's that's incredible. And, and what type of size of assets are you buying? Is it in the you know hundred to hundred and fifty thousand or two fifty to three hundred? Like what what's your sweet spot? My comfort level has always been affordable, lower middle class single family homes, which are. You know, typically 1,200 to 1,400 square feet, uh, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, one car, attached garage, and uh, after repair values in the 130 to 160 range. And I've always liked that because that's that's what I call a kind of a Goldilocks property. It's it's above the low income stuff, which can cause problems with, uh, you know, tenant retention, property management, repairs, Section 8 housing. It's below the upper middle class stuff. Those buyers are more price sensitive. Your your rental yields tend to be lower. You know, you don't rent a $400,000 house for twice a $200,000 house and so on. So that kind of lower middle class home was always our sweet spot. And I, I always kind of figured that if you position yourself kind of one or two rungs, you know, below the middle of the ladder, you're always going to have demand. If there's a boom, you're going to have people moving out of uh, kind of multifamilies and, and kind of cheaper houses into these nice single family homes. And if there's a recession, you're going to have people downsizing from the the big pool homes and the you know newer houses into these kind of more modest middle class houses. So there's always the most amount of people that can kind of buy and rent in that lower middle class suburban $150,000 area. And it's, it's, it's stood us very well over the years. That's awesome. And how has COVID started to impact the business? And what are you sort of, your crystal ball is showing you know in the future here with, with your business and, and how it's going to evolve? 
Well, it's changed our business a lot and changed mine a lot. I mean, we generally had about 20 properties in the pipeline at any one time. And now we've like a, like three or four. And, and just for the simple reason that uh, like housing has had an unusual reaction to the pandemic in that prices have accelerated <laughs> beyond what they normally would, which is sounds a little bit backwards. And, and it potentially is backwards because you've had, uh, you know, obviously as a response to the, the, the pandemic, you've had record low interest rates. You've had record government money propping up asset classes of every type. And uh, you've had a lot of sellers taking their homes off the market. And so inventories is lower than normal. Interest rates are lower than normal. And there's more money kind of circulating in the market. And everybody's been refinancing and everybody's been hoarding cash. And it's just prices in, in that area I described here, like 10% higher in June 2020 than they were in January 2020, a 10% jump in six months. It's just absolutely nuts. And um, so I, I you don't necessarily want to dive straight into that because it's it's margins are, are super tight. Profit margins for flippers are getting super tight. And uh, your, your natural inclination, if you were a kind of a cautious you know, business person, which I would consider myself to be, if you would kind of assume in November last year that you'd sell it for 150 and then the pandemic hits, I might decide, okay, I'm going to assume that it's going to sell for 140 just to be safe. So I'm going to offer this guy, whether it's a wholesaler or, you know, uh, an, an auction or I'll offer them 10,000 less. And I'm going to assume that it'll take me four months to sell it instead of two or three months to sell it. So your, your kind of criteria has got a lot tighter. You're offering less than you were, but at the same time, prices are going up. So you're not going to be buying much, are you? Unless you're just throwing caution to the wind, which... I'm not. So, uh, you know, that's, it's a funny situation. I, I think there's got to be some sort of correction uh, in the near future, um, but we're not seeing it yet. And I'm, I'm not diving in to be a property flipper in, in a market that's kind of so artificially inflated. I think you're safe enough being a buy and hold person because you're, you're literally putting down a 20% deposit at a record low interest rate. If you own the property for long enough, if you have a good manager, you're the long-term benefits of real estate haven't changed. You've got all those tax advantages. It's an inflation hedge. You're getting a, a tenant to pay back your loan. It's still a good time to be a, an owner. It's, it's not a bad time to be a lender either. I'm, I'm lending money to some flippers because you, you've got, you know, it's a short-term, it's a short-term play and, and you've got a bunch of equity in, in the loan. But it's it's a funny time to be a flipper. And I'm, I'm kind of adopting a bit of a wait and see mode at the moment. And um yeah, we, we'll see what happens. I think our product type is probably more resilient than most. The higher priced houses, like the seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar houses, those are those prices are already kind of trending down. But the affordable middle class stuff is suburban, low density housing uh, is is I think it's very very resilient and it's it's still doing very well. How are you pivoting with recurring revenue in your business, given that you are so? Is the business so heavily reliant upon the profits from the flip or you just mentioned before you're starting to pivot a little bit to lending so you can keep the, the doors open, the lights on? Yeah, I mean, any, any business owner has to remember that, you know, once you're, your, your business is your active income, you know, but you have to, you want to do something with that active income. You want to try and turn it into passive income. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And, and you know, for the last couple of years, I've been doing that. So the business is, is throwing off profits and obviously you can reinvest those in the business and keep doing more but you you kind of get to a stage in your business where you might be able to raise enough funds privately to scale up your flips or you're throwing off more profits and and for me the smarter thing to do if that was was to take money out and just invest it passively and build my own rental portfolio so i started building you know buying houses 
around Tampa buying houses out of state so that I'm not totally exposed to the Florida market. So I own real estate in Spain, I own real estate in Alabama, I own real estate in Ohio, and I'm, I'm kind of diversifying away from just being a landlord. So I've you know, invested in, in loan notes that pay off a fixed return. I you know, lend money to rehabbers in other states. So you're, I'm just diversifying away. So your, your active money from your business obviously firstly goes towards your business and secondly goes towards paying your own kind of family expenses and keeping your lights on and your mortgage on and your kids in schools and all the rest of it. But once you kind of get past that as a business owner, and you should always be aiming for that is, is you got to take your active income off the table and try and grow it into passive income streams. And if you do really, really well, your, your passive income will one day be greater than your active income. I mean, that's, that's the, the holy grail, right? That your business mm-hmm. throws off one amount because you're working your ass off making it happen. And then your passive income throws off another amount. So that's, uh, that's something a lot of people need to spend more time on. And it's something I wish I started doing earlier in, in, in my career because it, right. it makes all the difference. Right, right. Well, but it's also to do with understanding when to pivot and, and, and looking at the markets to see what's coming down the, the road and being prepared for that. And I think it's important to take profits from a business and reinvest them and diversify into those passive income vehicles in order for the rainy day funds, you know, it essentially acts like a rainy day when when you aren't actively buying right now in the business and um, you're not solely reliant upon that business, you know, keeping a roof over your head or keeping the kids in school or food on the table. So I think it's it's it's, it's really, really important. Um, Colin, look, we're coming to the end of the show. And uh, before we wrap up here, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yeah, go for it. Question number one is, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Well, I I enjoy quiet time, I think is very, very important. I I get up in the morning at least 45 minutes before everybody else. I spend about half an hour reading a business book. I read fiction in the evenings with my kids. I read business in the mornings on my own. And it's also an an idea to go through, you know, your your personal goals. I literally have them on, on a phone, on an app. And I, I read through them. And I think that kind of, um, that's important. You need to be aware of your goals. You need to read them, memorize them, read them every day. And just having some quiet time to yourself is, is vital, I think. And if you're the kind of person who just gets up and is immediately surrounded by kind of family and work and, and just getting on the kind of daily treadmill of life, you're going to find it very hard to take that step back to work kind of on your business, on your goals, instead of being in the trenches. So having a bit of quiet time in the morning is is my my kind of key time for figuring out where I am, if I'm moving in the right direction, if I need to make some changes. Uh, it's super important to have that quiet time in the morning. I completely agree. Just to set yourself right for the day and and, and go off and, uh, and, and make it happen. So awesome stuff. Um, question number two is, who's the most influential person in your career to date? I think that would be my business partner, David Shaw. I, I hired him to be you know, my sales manager in, in the Irish company back in 2007. And, and we set up Torcana you know, with his wife, Catherine, and, and ran that you know, for, for 10 years straight um, you know, with each other every step of the way. Literally started off with a couple of thousand dollars in, in a small pokey apartment in Dublin and, and, and grew it into a multi-million dollar business with a lot of moving parts and, and supporting a lot of people's livelihoods. And, and, you know, we were just, you know, when I was in Madrid, Spain, working on the business, it was him that I was talking to every day for an hour or more every day, just working out strategies and ideas. And uh, I think we helped each other uh, kind of get to, to where we are today. 
great. I, I love it. I think those types of people in your life are so important to help you, you know, both support each other, right? You know, you know, you know you've got someone else in the boat with you rowing in the same direction. So mm-hmm. uh, awesome stuff. Uh, in your business, what is the most influential tool? And when I mention tool, it could be a piece of software or it could be a physical tool like a phone or a journal. So, so what is it that you can't run the business without on a daily basis? Yeah, I actually got this one from Lee Kearney, who's a, a big single family home investor in Tampa. And I went into his office a couple of years ago and I saw that he had six screens on his desk all like three and then another three on top of each other. And he explained to me how it worked. And he had his email and his calendar on this one. And he had the auctions on this one. And he had, you know, the MLS on that one. And I was just blown away. And the next day I went out and, and bought two additional monitors. So now I've have three 21 inch monitors and it just transformed my productivity. A big part of my job was, was sourcing properties. So just to have the public records uh, and my calendar on one screen, the MLS on on another screen and, and a spreadsheet on another screen and being able to go back and forth to underwrite the different properties. It, it literally, I was working three times faster with, with those three screens and it was a $200 investment. And if you have the ability to do it, uh, I mean, get get that slightly bigger table if you need to and, and buy those two extra monitors. And it's, yeah, it's just, just a fantastic way to work. Uh, I completely agree. It's, um, it's, it's awesome to be able to have a couple of things open at once. You can quickly visually dance between the two of them or the three screens, whatever you might have. And it's just, uh, it is very, very pr- productive and increases your productivity over time. So I've actually never had that anyone answer that on the show before. So you're the first one. More screens on the desk, <laughs> more visual cues. So awesome stuff. Uh, question number four is, what has been the biggest failure you have, that has occurred in your career? And what did you learn from that failure? I think one of the biggest mistakes we made was was renovating houses out of state. You know, that almost knocked us out of business before we even got started. You know, we put a lot of our money in those houses in Charlotte when we were based in Tampa, and we could have easily lost, you know, significant six-figure sums on those two or three houses. And, and it was a minor miracle that it didn't happen, thanks to probably David just kind of decamping to, to Charlotte or spending a week, a month there for several months. But that that can happen sometimes when you start off being a property flipper, you can almost have a disaster during your first couple of deals. And, and some people have had that disaster and it can be very, very painful uh, or impossible to recover from a six-figure mistake earlier in your career. And it that almost happened to us. We kind of narrowed it by the skin of our teeth. But uh, yeah, if you're going to make mistakes earlier in your career, try and make them small mistakes. Don't don't go reaching for the, for the sun too quickly. And uh, we just didn't have the reserves to kind of get through that. And we were yeah, we very narrowly escaped the abyss there and wouldn't have got through the next 350 deals if we didn't manage to to get out of that one intact. Love it. Yeah, I, I remember fl- flipping a house from LA uh, in Philadelphia. It didn't go well. <laughs> so keep keeping keeping your eye on it. Even when you had a business partner, boots on the ground, it still had issues. So it can be really, really challenging. Uh, Colin, last question is, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? The easiest place to find me is on my website. It's colininvestments.com. That's C-O-L-I-N investments.com. Uh, you'll also find me on, on LinkedIn. You'll find me on, on, on Facebook. I have uh, Colin Podcasts about real estate is, is my show. You'll find that in all the usual places. But that, that website, colininvestments.com, you'll find some reports and videos, my contact information. You can schedule a call directly with me on, on my calendar if you like. And uh, very happy to chat to any, anybody about anything relating to, to real estate or, or growing a small business. 
Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. And I think the first thing for me is is integrity first. You, you, you know, early in the show, you mentioned how your integrity was so important to you at the early stages of your business and you weren't going to be sucked into this vicious cycle of trying to oversell bad product to your clients um, back home who were just mum and pop type of investors who had their life savings investing overseas. And you really took the fiduciary responsibility to make sure you're doing the right thing. So I thought that was really key. But I also thought that was what was quite um, intuitive of you is your statement about continually pivoting the business every four to five years as things change, as the market changes. And I think it's super important for everyone to hear that as a real estate investor, you want to be in one asset class for forever, but you may not. And having the ability to pivot really quickly uh, and, and see what's coming down the road uh, and have your sort of other ancillary income streams uh, set up in a way that you won't be sideswiped if the market changes from COVID or or the you know frothiness comes to the, the condominium market or whatever it might be. So I think it was really, really key to continually pivot your business every four or five years. So um, did I leave anything out? No, I think that's very well put and very well summarized. You summarized it better than I did. And, and I think you need to be willing. It's a kind of a balance. I mean, if you're not willing to take any risks in business, you'll probably end up working for someone who is. And you do need to keep changing. You cannot keep doing the same thing year after year after year. You're going to get to a stage where you're going to have to change. And you should change because that's how you grow as, as a business owner. And what I'm doing what I'll do for the next five years is, is going to be different than what I did for the last five years, just as what I did from 2009 to 14 was completely different to what I did from 2014 to, to 2019 or 2020. And that's, that's fun. I mean, you can, if you want, you, who wants to live the same year again and again and again anyway, right? I mean, you want to try new things and you want to get yourself in a position where you can try new things or where you can make mistakes and when you can move on. And that's, that's what it's all about. And, and real estate can kind of give you that freedom and, and can kind of give you the freedom to work with interesting people and talk to interesting people and, you know, explore and try new things. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happy. I, I kind of fell into this business because it could have, could have fallen into anything, but it just kind of fell into real estate. And I'm very glad I did. Awesome, mate. Awesome. Well, look, well, well put. Um, and I want to thank you again for taking some time out of your day to jump on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and have a great weekend. Remember to wash your hands and we'll catch up very, very soon. Well, they have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Colin and just an incredible story, him coming from Ireland, going moving to Spain, creating a business internationally, being at the coalface of selling product from around the world, from Bolivia to the Eastern Bloc of Europe, uh, all the way through to Italy and, and more. So really, really interesting. Remember to head over to his website um, at coloninvestments.com and we'll have all the links from today's show up on my show notes. So please do go check them out. And you can definitely find Colin and his podcast online. So it's Colin Murphy podcast about real estate. Uh, check it out on iTunes or wherever you podcast. I'm sure if you just Google it, pretty easy to come up with that. And uh, look, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. <laughs>